Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, April 14th. I'm Desiree Frazier in for Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, health officials call for a pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine following a change in CDC guidelines. Then, in the third installment of Your Vote, Your Voice, we examine both past and existing barriers to the ballot. Plus, the fate of medical marijuana possibly hangs in the balance as the Mississippi Supreme Court hears oral arguments challenging the legitimacy of Initiative 65. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi vaccine providers are pausing Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccinations in the state while the CDC investigates six related cases of blood clots. No cases of the weird blood clot associated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine have been identified in Mississippi. But health officials say they are erring on the side of caution until the CDC has finished its investigation. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says the risk of someone getting this type of blood clot from the J&J vaccine is extremely rare. Now, this isn't the same thing you would see like with a blood clot of a leg that we normally think of. This is a rare and uncommon syndrome where folks will have uh, venous clots within the veins of, of the brain and, and, of the, and of the head. They, of these six cases, all have been female and ages were 18 to 48. These were also associated with thrombocytopenia or low platelet levels. Of these six folks, um, they had all received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine between six and 13 days prior to the onset of these symptoms. Please know that this notification is only uh, is only relevant to Johnson & Johnson. It does not apply to any other uh, COVID vaccines. Right now, the risk seems, seems to be extremely rare. It looks like it's gonna be less than one in a million based on currently available information. And then we think about the context of risk from coronavirus. We do know that coronavirus mortality risk is still pretty remarkable 
in comparison of people diagnosed with coronavirus in the age of 25 to 39, we have seen two deaths per 1,000. So um, there is some perspective to take into account. The CDC's investigation could last several days, and health officials say the state will not resume Johnson & Johnson vaccinations until the results are provided. Dr. Dobbs says people who have received the vaccine within the last three weeks should follow CDC guidance. They do recommend um, that uh, people who have received Johnson & Johnson vaccine within three weeks who develop severe headaches, abdominal pain, leg pain, or shortness of breath, to contact their their physician or clinic. Um, this The achiness and stuff that happens immediately after the shot, that's not what we're talking about. So if you have just have that normal sort of stuff, then there's no need to be concerned. But if you have one of these other things, severe headaches, severe abdominal pain, leg pain or shortness of breath, within three weeks of the Johnson & Johnson, please call your physician or clinic. But we do wanna re- reiterate that the risk is extremely low and patients who have already received Johnson & Johnson should not be overly concerned, but just be aware um, as outlined above. About 53,000 doses of the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine are at clinics, pharmacies, and hospitals across Mississippi. State epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers says those doses will likely not go to waste in that time. This is a, a temporary pause. Um, we will make sure that those providers who've received the Johnson & Johnson that haven't administered yet are, are maintaining it in the uh, appropriate conditions for it to remain viable. And, um, you know, it, when the time comes, if we need to um, uh, replace those with, with different doses, with Pfizer and, uh, or Moderna, we will certainly work with the providers to, uh, to, to make sure that that happens. Coming up in the third installment of Your Vote, Your Voice, we examine both past and existing barriers to the ballot. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Throughout American history, access to the ballot has been a controversial issue. When the nation was founded, voting was limited to white landowners. Efforts to expand the right to vote over the centuries were often met with resistance. And even after the 15th, 19th, and 26th Amendments removed federal restrictions based on race, color, previous condition of servitude, and sex, and reduce the legal age to 18, many communities still face barriers to voting. 
Aside from the voting rights secured through constitutional amendments, the federal government currently exhibits little power over elections. The power to manage and administer elections belongs to the states, and it's where some barriers can still be found. To examine the history of voting laws and practices designed to create roadblocks to the ballot, Christy Wheeler, co-president of the Mississippi League of Women Voters, joined our Karen Brown. They begin with women voters. It's kind of a sad tale. Uh, The history of women voters in Mississippi um, deals with white supremacy and segregation, unfortunately. And as a result of that, women, white women, were given the right to vote under the 19th Amendment, but black women were not, even though they were very, very active in the movement to give women the right to vote. What about Native Americans? Native Americans have kind of gotten uh, lost, I think, in the, the, the white supremacy, uh, confederacy, slavery issue. And yet um, Native Americans and also other minorities, Asians, for example, have gotten um, really uh, hard times and were treated with a great deal of prejudice during the 1800s and 1900s and, and today, obviously, with... Uh, the, the problems with the Asian population, American Asian population, with the harassment that they're seeing, it's a, they're all barriers to those people being able to access um, the, the polling booth. One of the things that Mississippi did well with uh, the voter identification was that they accepted uh, Native American ID cards, which is not done at a, in a lot of states. So that was a benefit to that. All right, let's talk about the African-American community. We know about poll taxes and literacy tests. Those are obviously big barriers. Give us the history. When did that start in terms of uh, discouraging African-Americans from voting? Well, it actually started... Um, after Reconstruction, um, so that as the whites began to gain power again, they put in provisions that would keep blacks, African-Americans, from being able to vote. And that's poll taxes and literacy tests. They started in the 1800s and, and late 1800s and then went on through the 1900s until the Civil Rights Act. And that's when we finally got some traction for African-Americans to be able to vote. Did it stop cold with the Civil Rights Act? Oh, my gosh. No, <laughs> not, not at all. Uh, it's like saying that uh, discrimination has gone away. Racism has gone away. No, that did not happen at all. Uh, many people would like to believe that that was the case. Hey, we passed the Civil Rights Act. Everything must be fine now. But that is not the case at all. There are still lots of barriers. Um, the the initiative for, for voter ID, for example, falls heavily on the African-American and poor communities because they don't have birth certificates necessarily. Uh, I think it's a shame. I understand why conservatives want to have verification of citizenship. I understand that. But if they were really serious about giving greater access to every eligible voter, they would have gone out and given ID cards to everybody. They would have made a huge push to make sure that everyone had a voter ID card. They didn't do that. 
election security is raised as the reason why there isn't mail-in voting or early voting. Yet this last election in 2020, the general election, was secure, was the securest election uh, on record, according to many. Where's the fine line? I assume it's a fine line between having safeguards in the election process versus barriers. And that's not an easy line to define. However, uh, if if you look at um, what what we're doing, as you said, this was the safest election we've had. So part of it is based on this misconception, untruth, (laughs) uh, that that mail-in voting is is somehow um, open to fraud. And yet there is no documentation that that is the case. So trying to find the way that we can protect voters, we have to identify what are real problems and what are not real problems. And the, the fraud issue is not a real problem. I think that we've got good systems in place to protect the security of our elections. We don't need more restrictions. We don't need more um, laws that um, would throw people off the voter rolls. And and that's an issue in Mississippi. We should all want to have the greatest possible access for the most people to be able to go to the polls. That's what democracy is really about. Not shutting it down, not closing it off, opening it up to everyone. Well, Georgia certainly set off a powder keg with its recent rules, uh, laws rather, about voting. The controversy that has erupted because of that, what seems to divide this country even more. Is this an ongoing, do you see this as an ongoing problem or or will it be resolved in some way because of those who have stood up to oppose what's happening in Georgia? I think that it's an ongoing problem. Uh, we had exactly the same issues in Mississippi. We had um, many uh, voter restrictive um, laws that were in committee. I have to give full credit to our legislature although we had some bills to um, that would expand voting rights, they were all killed in committee, but all the negative bills were also killed in committee. So that was a good thing for the state of Mississippi. We did not pursue uh, into law any of these restricting uh, restrictive laws. The whole idea of, of the, the, the restrictions, I think that they will have some impact, but they will have some blowback also. So I think this is an ongoing problem that we have to deal with the underlying problem, which is racism. And until we deal with that problem, then we're not going to be able to move forward. And and this is a big problem for Mississippi because we have so many people who are brought up in the the theory that the Confederacy was a good thing uh, and, and our we educate our, our children that way. And I don't mean just at home. We do it in our schools also. We're not honest about um, what slavery meant and the, the aftermath uh, of slavery and the aftermath of this, the um, civil rights movement. We're not 
accurate about those. We just glossed them over. We've got to do a better job. We've got to do a better job with civics education and teaching people about how our government works. We can do a better job, and that's what we need to be doing. And that's one of the things that the League of Women Voters is focused on. Christy Wheeler is the co-president of the League of Women Voters in Mississippi. I thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Federal legislation that would standardize some voting practices and procedures and expand access to the ballot is meeting resistance on Capitol Hill. The bill would expand universal mail-in voting as well as early voting. It would also seek ways to streamline the registration process. Last month, during an interview with WLOX-TV, Secretary of State Michael Watson expressed discontent with federal efforts to eliminate barriers. I don't know that a Republican could ever win another national election. And Dave, one thing that has slipped by and some folks really haven't noticed, there was an executive order that came out about two and a half weeks ago dealing with voter registration, basically employing all the federal agencies, universities, and colleges to register as many folks as they can via this automatic voter registration. So you think about on the coast, we have a hurricane, uh, FEMA comes in and we'll get FEMA help. On that FEMA application now is going to be an area for voter registration, and it's automatic voter registration unless you opt out. So think about all these woke college university students now who will automatically be registered to vote. Whether they wanted to or not, again, if they didn't know to opt out, they're going to be automatically registered to vote. And then they receive this mail-in ballot uh, that they didn't even probably know was coming because they didn't know they registered to vote. You got an uninformed citizen who may not be prepared and ready to vote. Automatically, it's forced on them. Hey, go make a choice. Uh, and our country's going to pay for those tools. Watson's comments gained national attention last week. He later told WLOX he probably could have found a better way to word his thoughts about automatic registration. For those leaving prison, the weight of a felony conviction can also impede the ability to participate in the democratic process. Certain crimes carry disenfranchisement penalties, but other obstacles also hinder ex-inmates when it comes to voting. Pauline Rogers is with the REACH Foundation. She says the requirements for registration are often barriers for those re-entering their communities. It can be housing. Some of them don't have stable address. You have to have an address. Some of the barriers that some of them face would also be identification, where they may not have their license or a proper ID in order to go vote. And some of those people that get out of prisons here in Mississippi are not all from Mississippi, but caught their case while in Mississippi. And unless they have all of their documents to make them be a citizen in the state of Mississippi, that's a barrier, even if they are eligible to vote once they get out. How can so there we, are some barriers. How can REACH help them in that regard? Well, we try to keep them educated with the uh, 26 crimes, the felony offenses that uh, prohibits them from voting, and we try to assist everyone. We house women. We have reentry housing that we house women, so we are able to work with them more intimately and closely, but men come to us as well, some of them even living in other transitional homes here in the state and out of the state. So we try to help them get their identification and get their birth certificate and social security card in order to be able to start the process. Our 
are those who exit prison or how many would you say that you come in contact with are interested in voting and having that voice? A lot of them are interested in voting. However, I have uh, encountered a lot of the people that got out when I got out of prison over 30 some years ago are more apt to staying in the closet. Staying in the closet meaning they're not really wanting to be frontline advocates because they have stable jobs, they have stable housing, and, you know, stable uh, in their churches or whatever in the community, and they're not wanting to upset that with digging up their past because of the perpetual punishment and the perpetual way you are viewed with a felony conviction in this state, and, of course, not just Mississippi, but all, all over. So a lot of them are not wanting to come out the closet for that reason. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to rock the boat because 30 some years ago, this was not a topic on the forefront. And now that it is, those people that have been stabilized from years ago are not wanting to upset that. And I understand it. Pauline Rogers is with the Reach Foundation. Coming up, the fate of medical marijuana possibly hangs in the balance as the Mississippi Supreme Court hears oral arguments challenging the legitimacy of Initiative 65. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi Supreme Court justices will hear oral arguments today challenging signature collections for Initiative 65. The constitutional amendment was approved by at least 74 percent of Mississippi voters last November, and it makes medical marijuana legal in the state. But the mayor of the city of Madison is challenging the initiative, claiming signature collections for the ballot referendum are unconstitutional. The Mississippi Constitution requires an equal number of signatures from five congressional districts. The state lost a seat after the 2000 census, but the Constitution hasn't been updated to four districts to change the process. Ken Newberger is with the Mississippi Medical Marijuana Association. He says signatures gathered during the initiative process were legitimate. Today, they're hearing a challenge to the initiative process um, that is going to challenge what everybody voted for last year, where over a million Mississippians voted in the election and 74 percent of people voted for Initiative 65. Um, that That's the biggest takeaway is that there are a lot of people that wanted to see this happen, and now uh, there's a challenge asking to overturn that election. Do you see any validity to the argument that the signatures were collected in a way that did not meet the state constitutional standards? Absolutely not. I think that every signature that was gathered for Initiative 65 was done properly. The Secretary of State correctly uh, put the initiative on the ballot, and we all voted to approve it. Well, the mayor of Madison is um, leading this lawsuit, Mary Hawkins. 
she does not support the law because she doesn't want to be in a position where she cannot limit the number of dispensaries in the city. Do you see that as a reasonable concern? No, I think the initiative gives plenty jurisdiction to local municipalities to zone just as they can any business. And it also has special specifications for medical marijuana. So if you could say anything to the justices about this lawsuit, what would be your comments? The bottom line is that we had an election last year where 74% of Mississippians voted for Initiative 65 and asking and one politician asking to overturn an election is unfair to all those people who voted. Well, the health department has uh, filed a brief in support of the lawsuit. How do you feel about that? Um, I think that that's all. The, uh, those are briefs that were filed a while ago, and I'm focused on the challenge from the mayor of Madison and how she's looking at this initiative. How would you feel if it was struck down? Frankly, I'd feel awful if it was struck down, and I don't think it's something that would happen just because our court is in the business of giving rights to people rather than taking it away. What's being asked of the court right now is to take away the right of the people to change their constitution and vote democratically. Have you had a personal experience where medical marijuana has benefited you or a loved one? So I have had uh, several family members that have come to me after I told them what I was working on was medical marijuana, that they said, hey, you may not know this about me, but I actually have medical marijuana for one of the conditions listed. Um, I'm actually, they've all asked me not to list them them specifically, but it's personal family members of me. So it, it did quickly become a very personal fight. At this point, what would you say to voters who are going to be watching the outcome of this closely? Yeah, I think that I would say um, if you voted for Initiative 65, uh, thank you. Keep paying attention to these kinds of events because what matters is that patients in Mississippi get relief and that voices are heard for that relief. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that's important to point out? No, I just reiterate the you know, weight of this case that is before our court, that 74% of Mississippians voted in favor of Initiative 65, and now it's being asked of our court to overturn the election. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.